ומצוותיו וציוונו לעסוק בדברי תורה. Today we're starting the fourth book, Bamidbar, the book of Numbers. Um, and um, I have a specific topic that I was having fun exploring, that I want to explore with you. Um, so you're, we're, I, not a topic I have a lot of answers about, just like, let's explore this, which is the preoccupation in the Torah with the firstborn, and the place the Levites play in the replacing the firstborn and all that. So, by way, but by way of introduction, the book of Numbers is the, it comes from the Greek uh, and uh, refers to the fact that there are several census counts in the book of Numbers. Uh, and that's why it also has an additional Hebrew name called Sefer HaPkudim, the book of the accountings. But it's known in the, our tradition primarily as Sefer Bamidbar, in the wilderness. And as you may know, uh, the, the way the books are named is by the first word in that book that isn't a common word. So um, uh, Bamidbar could be an accidental name. But it isn't, uh, because in the wilderness is what's going on in the book of Numbers. They've, they have left Egypt. They have received all of the rules, instructions. They've built the Mishkan. They've, in, they've uh, invested the priests. Everything's like all ready to go. And in the book of Bamidbar in the wilderness, they start their wanderings. And the book of Bamidbar covers the next 38 years, right? Because they've been out of Egypt for a year, and now the year of wandering, and then they come to the shores of the River Jordan, and the book of Deuteronomy, uh, which means the rep repetition of the laws, uh, and known in Hebrew as Devarim, which means the book of words, because all of Devarim is a speech by Moses, recounting all the events and laws that the children of Israel have to remember before they enter the Promised Land. So in this book, we cover a lot of ground. And you should know that it only covers the second year out. And then in Chukat, in chapter 20, it's like 38 years later. So the inter Aaron dies and Miriam dies. So there's actually a lot of action, but uh, there's a whole um, section of years that doesn't actually get talked about. Just letting you know that that's kind of the narrative of the book. Did you have a question, Anne? I did. I wanted to know if you had any comment about this. Um, first, uh, God told Moses to take a census of all young men over 20 and over who could bear arms. Correct. That was the first one. And then he was to take a census of men from 30 to 50? Is it 30? 30, that's 30 among 30 the Levites. Yes, that's a second group among the Levites, right. Right. And then in the next book of Numbers, he's going to take a census of the children. Um, the children of Israel? Yes. In, what is that, in Pinchas? The I think so. The very next um, I just read the uh, first line of it, and it asked for... In the next Parsha? Oh, yes. oh, yeah, let's see. Uh... Take a census of the Gershonites, the Marites, that one? Yes, but this is my question. Yeah. 
do you have any comments about the fact that it never mentions counting the women? I do have a comment about that. Because it specifically says... It never mentions counting the women or children. Because this census is of all the able-bodied males. And it's up to us. That's the answer. That's the answer. And uh, because it's a census to... um, The question... On the one hand, it's a census of... The first one is all the able-bodied males who can be soldiers. Right. In the second count, it's all of the men of the tribe of Levi who are specifically set aside to work in the sanctuary who are between the ages of 30 and 50, which are the years that has been designated for them to be of service as Levites in the temple. The third count um, is the continuation of the count of the tribe of Levi. Um, so those we're, we're actually referring to just to two counts. Um, so it raises the question. So it raises the question for us of who counts, not who does the counting, but who counts, right? Because that word has a double meaning in both English and in Hebrew. Um, and uh, uh, if you if you're counted, it means you count, you matter, right? And in this ancient patriarchal society, women and children are considered to be extensions of the men of their household. It's not that they don't have individual selfhood, but they don't count as individuals separate from the the patriarch of their clan. Does that make sense? But they did give birth to all these men. They They don't count. They are not counted. They are not counted. That's right. I don't That's want to right. Take on an attitude here. Take on an attitude. That was then. This is now. Take no, no, no. You're not counted in here. It's our once again. Just a second, Gail. It's our job, if we're going to take our tradition into the 21st century, to say that was then. Who counts now? And if we were going to do a count, who would we include? Right. So yeah, no, I don't accept the Torah at face value. Gail, uh, and then Gail. I just wanted to say two things. One is that the first part of the census is for men who will bear arms. Right. Okay, so they need to know who they've got for an army. Yes, they do. And that's the major reason for the census. Right. It's not about just finding out who they've got. It's who can fight. That's right. And they don't have women fighting. Nope. And yes, there's also a sex thing because for the handling of the implements of the temple, it's only men. So that's yes. definitely sexist. But what's interesting to me that I never noticed until just now when Anne asked the question, I went to Nasa and look, and immediately after you have that count, it says... Um, Let's turn to the right page so we can all see what it. What page are we on? We're going to page find it. 925? 924, 925. 924 and 925. And then it immediately... Hold on, we want to find it. Okay. Tell us what verse you're in. Well, I'm looking at the end of 924, on page 924, so they're still continuing all the counts. All the Levites recorded from the age of 30 to 50 who were subject to duties of service and portalage relating to the tent of meeting. It's verse 47. Great. And then that section ends, and you start 5.1, okay? 
Yes, on page 925. So now you have, instruct the Israelites to remove from camp anyone with an eruption or a discharge and anyone defiled by a corpse. Remove male and female alike. Mm -hmm. Okay, then you jump down to verse 5. Speak to the Israelites. When men or women individually commit any wrong toward a fellow human being, they shall. Good. And then you go to the next page, and it says... It's On 926. 926. What verse? Um, verse 11. Okay. Um, in which is the question, either of the wife being actually unfaithful, or the husband thinking she's unfaithful. Right. And there's that. And then you jump to page... After that section is finished, you go to page 928. Chapter 6. Chapter 6, and speak to the Israelites and say to them, if any man or woman explicitly utter a Nazarite's vow, so it's men or women. I mean, over and over and over again. Over and over and over. So Which this is... to me a counterpoint. Mm-hmm. This is where... Go on, I, didn't, I interrupted no, you. That's all. You've heard it. This is where our lens of, hey, why aren't they counting the women, makes us jump to conclusions. Uh, yes. Well, not only that, I mean, I guess I don't see the Torah as saying, oh, this is the way it should be. It's, I mean, it's a reflection of the times. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not, we don't have to take it like, oh, you know, the Torah says women don't count. The Torah reflects what the attitudes were of those times. Correct. And thank you. And so what I want to say, thanks to Gail's uh, showing us all those verses where men and women are invoked for all kinds of activities, including the vow of the Nazarite, which is a vow of how you get closer to God, and including any problems with uh, uh, ritual defilement, which applies to men and women, and you have to go out of the camp in order to be re, uh, go through your purification ceremony. Um, is to say that uh, because of our sensitivity, which I appreciate very much, to women being excluded, I think that's an awareness of, that feminism has given us that I am very, very committed to, as you know. But it also makes us think, uh, it also makes us jump to conclusions about biblical society. Women do count in biblical society, it's clear. Uh, they don't occupy the same status as men in biblical society, but they matter and they count. And yes, this census is a census of um, military, people of military service, and also people who will work in the sacred precinct, uh, which, is which is restricted to men. But as Gail has pointed out, we shouldn't then paint with broad brushstrokes um, that women are therefore second-class citizens and excluded. Um, in the Torah. Yes, Helen. I think it's not until very recent that the term head of household meant the man. It isn't until now that women are heads of household, commonly. Yes. I mean, head of household, your mind jumps to the, the, the husband, the man. That, right, we're still conditioned to think that way. An old census um, report. Um, we were looking for, to see who lived in our house. Anyway, it was my on the report with my grandfather at this address in Brooklyn was William Seft. And in that, in his group was his 
whoever was his family. They weren't listed individually as residents of this house. Right? Well, how long, how long has it been since ago. invitations stopped being addressed to Mr. and Mrs. Jonathan Kligler? Right. I mean, where's the woman, right? It's like, it's so new. Well, our awareness is, it's so new and we're hypersensitized to it, which I'm happy about. But it's like, don't blame the Bible. It's like, this is like, I'm convinced that it has to do to a large degree with being primates. Um, When you look at primate behavior, and like maybe we're getting to a point over the last 100, 200 years where we might transcend some of our primate behavior, let alone biblical behavior. So... uh, uh, you know, I'm sorry to be sort of a broken record about this, but we have to remember how recent a development women's liberation is. Um, that we're in the hundredth year of women getting the right to vote. And uh, um, that, when you think about the civil rights struggle, after the slaves were uh, uh, emancipated, then came, uh, and the 10 years of reconstruction, then came the new Jim Crow, it was a hundred-year struggle until the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act were passed in 1964. And that was a hundred years. And look where we're at. You know, we're still struggling. But they, you know, it's a hundred years since women got the vote. That was a hundred-year struggle since the beginning of women's suffrage, an 80-year struggle. Uh, up here in upstate New York began. And then, in that hundred years since women got the vote, we haven't elected a woman president. We haven't, you know, so just keep it in mind as we critique this ancient uh, text. Uh, it, like, it's a critique of everything. And we have to critique, so I just want to remember that. Yes? Is there any uh, research which compares um, the Torah with other uh, beliefs or writings at that time. I mean, not contemporary now. I understand. Feminist scholarship has addressed this in the last few decades for the first time because it never occurred to the men to do it. it, Because you could spin it the way Gail pointed out, that it's uh, probably very innovative that the Torah mentions men Men and and women women. so So frequently. So if you think about waves of scholarship, the first wave is the one that will look at the position of women in the Bible, critique it, you know, compare it to other New Eastern cultures, do all that. But the next wave, having done that, and I think this is where we're at now in scholarship, can be more nuanced in its analysis. And uh, I have some of those books on my shelf. I haven't read any in a while, so I can't say anything uh, particularly intelligent about a Bruria. Uh, I am a witness of the power of the woman. The power of the woman is in the house. And it, everything in the households is dict- not dictated in an aggressive way. She's in charge. Prescribed by the woman. Mm-hmm. I know from my family, mm-hmm. my grandmother was the boss of the family. It's true. All my uncles, my grandfather, were listening to her. Yep. And she was the one who was teaching the children to read. Yep. And it was later when they went to the Heder and they learned. Mm-hmm. But all the beginnings of the man's success or outward power was due to the women in the house. 
with a few significant, behind every great man, there's a powerful woman, right? That, making him miserable. Making him miserable, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, within human history, with some notable exceptions, the domestic sphere, the place of child-rearing and maintaining the hearth and feeding and nurturing and passing on cultural traditions has been the, the purview of the female and the public sphere has been the purview of the male. Um, that doesn't mean the women don't have power. Just look at Genesis. I mean, we talked about this in the fall when we examined all the women in Genesis and Exodus. They are controlling the narrative, right? We, do you remember from our, if you were here in the fall, it was really striking to all of us to discover that despite the fact that they're not the protagonists like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're actually central, absolutely indispensable to the forward move of the Torah narrative. And that's true about women. And in our moment in time, we've recognized that anyone who's a feminist understands that women can do that or they should have the right to do the public role as well. That's feminism, right? That every woman should have that option and not be legally or socially uh, restricted from that option. But even that, there's, when you look at the history in my, my reading of history, um, the treatment of women, the degree to which they've been demonized or suppressed or oppressed, varies in different ages and cultures of Western history. So that the women of East, Jewish women of Eastern Europe, who were very much in charge of a lot from the studies I've read, both of the household, but also they often were the ones running the business. Right? They were literate. They were, when their studies that have been written, that when these families came to the United States and a new um, paradigm of masculinity was thrust upon these immigrant families and the men were supposed to work and support the household and be the man of the house and uh, that these powerful Jewish women found themselves um, um, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Jailed, confined to the house. And one of the analysis I read is that the stereotype of the Jewish, mo the Jewish mother is, could be traced to frustrated women who, were, who came from a culture used to having more leverage, more activity, more, and being stuck in the role of American housewife and pouring all this energy into their children. It's a very interesting critique. Uh, and so I'm saying that again to say that there are constant fluctuations in this. Um, so that's what I wanted to share because I find that really interesting. Helen? I think today... <coughs> Women being frustrated, what you're saying that... Well, Betty Friedan was the Jewish housewife who wrote her... The now there's a new reality of women who are having families because that's the family now. Right. Statistically, it's tremendous number of families are headed by women. Right. So they're in a different place. 
That's right. They're, they're not like frustrated because they don't have power vis-a-vis their husband or whatever. They are, whether they like it or not, now thrust into the role of the uh, of everything. You know, of everything. Every, you know, and the, and they're still the doing it backwards and in high heels, as they say. And the statistics are tremendous. Yes. You know, these are women. Maybe they, don't, they would like to have a partner. They don't have yes. one. Yes. Yep. They are it. And yeah. That has changed. Right. Tremendously. It's no longer we're frustrated because, you know, some right. nice kind of life that you would like where you have all this. Things, people have to do this. That's right. And that's all happened in recent and decades, too. Recent. So, so much change. And <coughs> This joke is uh, not from 2,000 years ago. It's current. Yeah. The husband comes home from work today, <coughs> looks around and says, Honey, this... Ha- this ha- why, why don't you go out and get a job? This house is so neat and clean and everything's in place. Why don't you go out and get a little job so we can get a little extra money? Oh, like, because now, because who who's been house? doing the house? Right, right, right. Right. Bria, did you want to add something? Yes, I wanted to add, and as to women not being in the public uh, view, sphere, yeah. Are, we know at least two women. Gloria right. and Vora, right. uh, who were uh, very fam- who are very famous in the Hebrew literature. Right. And uh, the other ones probably never got to publish. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but the the problem of there being only one Bria among four hundred other Talmudic personages is that why is there only one? And and so it speaks to it's odd. Yeah. It, yeah. It, was under certain circumstances because she wasn't even given credit for what she right what she has done. It's true, but, but there are there, and so Jewish feminist scholarship reaches for those women who do appear in prominent positions and who are recognized and whose teachings are transmitted. Very rare, but that may not because be because of sexism per se. That may be because of social structure. Yeah. And the public versus the uh, domestic realms. Um, but yes, women uh, have always had way more influence. They just don't get published, as you say. That's right. That's right. Uh, yes, Ted? With this in mind, I'll tell you a funny story. Good. I asked the Schmidt, my first father-in-law, a Hungarian refugee. He would never speak up in the house. Said, Eula, speak up. Speak up. He says, in the house, I'm a mouse. In the house, Unsi, my figure, she's the, she's the lion. And they never argue. Way to go. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good story. That's a pertinent story. That's a pertinent story. Oh, I wish I had more time to read about all this stuff. Um, but I'm too busy watching YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so now I want to move from there to this other subject. I want you to look at, uh, let's see. Um, Are we going to talk about the thing in your bed? The first one? Yeah, yeah, that's where we're going. Yeah, turn to page um, 906. Verse 11. 
The Eternal One spoke to Moses saying, I hereby take the Levites from among the Israelites in place of all the male firstborn, the first issue of the womb of the Israelites. The Levites shall be mine. For every male firstborn is mine. At the time that I smote every firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated every male firstborn in Israel, human and beast, to myself, to be mine. yod heh that, that passage caught my eye today. Me too. Yeah. So, it appears, from my reading and looking all over the place, that in ancient Israel and in surrounding cultures, the firstborn belonged to God. In the Jewish story, the fact that the angel of death, that God passed over the homes of the Israelites and only took the firstborn of the Egyptians, meant that the children of Israel owed God their firstborn. It seems there are enough clues that in some surrounding cultures, sacrifice of the firstborn was commonplace as an offering to the God, to God or the gods. And, uh, but it's not just the firstborn child. It's the firstborn of any animal that you domesticate. That remains in the Torah because the firstborn animal belongs to God. And the first fruits, a fruit tree that bears, the first year of its bearings, bearing, you cannot eat that fruit. You have to collect it all and bring it to the temple for God. So the firstborn of everything belongs to God. It seems like in Judaism, instead of child sacrifice, which is mentioned in um, the Book of Kings, in this story, I put it on the wrong page. Okay. Um, oh, there we go. The Israelites and the Moabites are at war. The Moabites are um, Israel's cousins, but also enemies, right? They're like a kin tribe that are enemies. And their God's name is Molach. Sound familiar? Melech, right? Their God is also God the king. And Molech, um, it's, and so the king of Moab, um, let's see, they entered the Israelite camp, now to the spoil, Moab says the, says the king, uh, they advanced, but the Israelites destroyed their towns and uh, they stopped up every spring. Seeing that the battle was going against him, the king of Moab led an attempt of 700 swordsmen to break away through. They failed. So he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him up on the wall as a burnt offering. There it is. Well, there it is, I'm just saying. And then elsewhere, it says, do not let your sons and daughters pass through the fire of Molech. Right? That's a commandment in the Torah, repeated more than once. 
and then, of course, we have the story of the Akedah, of Isaac, right? The binding of Isaac, where Abraham goes all the way to being ready to, to sacrifice his firstborn, and um, the angel says, don't touch that lad. So in that complicated story, one of the threads of it seems to be a prohibition against child sacrifice Mm. to show how faithful you are. Karen? So is it the firstborn son of the male, or is it the firstborn son of the female? If a male has several wives, does he have to... Are we talking about the firstborn through Yeah, I looked that up in the encyclopedia. Um, because, uh, well, be, no, Karen just, Karen just thinks about stuff like that. Because uh, uh, in, in, among animals, it's the firstborn of a female. They can't tell who paternity is, right? So is it the first fruits of your womb as, as a woman? And uh, there appears to be um, two different threads that I couldn't keep track of, Karen. Um, and uh, I think you see that confusion in um, the Torah because in Deuteronomy, um, 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 Deuteronomy 21, 15 to 17, I didn't put a sticky on it. Here it is. Look at, if you want, look at page 1322. Verse 15. If a husband has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, sound familiar? And both the loved and the unloved have borne him sons, but the firstborn is the son of the unloved one. When he wills his property to his sons, he may not treat his firstborn the son of the loved one in disregard of the son of the unloved one who is older. Instead, he must accept the firstborn, the son of the unloved one, and allot to him a double portion of all he possesses, since he is the first fruit of his vigor. The birthright is his due. Which contradicts every story in the book of Genesis. Because in Genesis, who's the firstborn of Jacob? Reuben. The firstborn. Reuben. Uh, Reuben climbs onto Bilhah's bed, and so he like, it seems you can learn, lose your firstborn privilege. Nonetheless, who is the loved wife and the unloved wife in that story? It's almost like Deuteronomy is critiquing Genesis or something like that. Clearly, Leah, who is also the firstborn, and Rachel the younger, is the unloved wife and bears children first. And so Reuben should be the, the firstborn, but instead uh, in Genesis it says um, 43, I did put a sticky on that one. Pardon me? Yes, but Rachel, but it says there, you can't just give the loved one's son special firstborn treatment rather than, but clearly Jacob treats Joseph as his firstborn from the get-go, 
As soon as Joseph is born, he's given a coat of many colors and all the things that happened to him. Uh, but in, um, in Genesis 43, 33, uh, hold on. Not so much. There, they just accept it. They, not so much in the Talmud. I'm asking this question more than the Talmud seems to be asking this question. I find it so interesting. Um, uh, so, 4333, excuse me. Here it is. Oh, oh, I meant 485. Okay, sorry about that. Um, While you're looking, this is not lost in the Middle Ages because all the bastards of, of the wealthy come out of the woodwork to claim their birthright. And they get it. Yeah. Hmm. Um, okay, in chapter 48, Jacob is fading. He calls Joseph and tells Joseph to bring his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, and... Now then, your two sons born to you in the land of Egypt before my arrival in Egypt, they are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be to me like Reuben and Shimon. But your progeny, whom you engender after them, are yours. And so what he does, what Jacob does, is he gives Joseph a double portion, which is what it says here, you sh that the firstborn gets a double portion, by adopting his two sons. So J Jacob is de facto making Joseph his firstborn, the, the, the firstborn of the loved wife rather than the unloved Leah, and Jacob just isn't following the rules at all. But then, as we know, God doesn't follow the rules either in Genesis. Um, because over and over again, God indicates to, the, to Rebecca to, uh, and to Sarah that that it's the, the older is going to serve the younger. So that brings up a question we've discussed before. Is this to show in the Bible that the, the, the way God chooses is not the way that so, the social order is, that God, can, God, who is the creator of all, can subvert and any human construction? What's it mean? You know, we have those questions to ask. Um, but I wanted to, um, okay, uh, so that's the loved and unloved wife. Um, now in Exodus, let's turn to this page, page 356, because we're still collecting information. Page 356. This is at the burning bush. Verse 21. And the Eternal said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the marvels that I will have put within your power 
I, however, will stiffen his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Eternal, Israel is my firstborn son. I think that, I don't know if we pay much attention to that line. Israel is my firstborn son. And I have said to you, let my son go that he may worship me. Yet you refuse to let him go. And so now I will slay your firstborn son. So again, we're dealing with for the firstborn son gets a double portion, the firstborn, and uh, Israel, so the Torah compares Israel to a firstborn that God has chosen to be God's special treasure, people. And then it has this passage that I think must be related to it that's very mysterious. And then at a night encampment on the way, the Eternal encountered him and sought to kill him. So Tzipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched his legs with it, saying, You are truly a bridegroom of blood to me. And when God let him alone, she added a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, countless bottles of ink have been spilled on this little verse. So all I want to say is that it seems to be that the circumcision of Tzipporah's son is connected to God saying, Israel is my firstborn son. There's some connection between the blood that's going to be spilt and the blood of the circumcision that protects the son against the angel of death. If you follow what I'm saying, I'm, I'm not trying to make final pronouncements, but I'm seeing the relationship there. So Israel is God's firstborn son. And then in chapter 13 of Exodus, just as we continue our little survey, um, if you turn to page... Um, 4.16. Oh no, Chapter 13, the Eternal One spoke further to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me every male firstborn, human and animal. The first male issue of every womb among the Israelites is mine. And Moses said to the people, uh, this, is a, this is in the instructions right before the 10th plague. Um, and so Moses tells the people, Remember this day that you're going free and the Eternal is going to take you to a land of milk and honey. And seven days, I'm on the next page already, seven days you'll eat unleavened bread, and this shall be a sign. And keep this Passover for, 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 throughout your generations. And then chat, verse 11. And when the Eternal had, has brought you into the land of the Canaanites, as God swore to you and to your ancestors and has given it to you, you shall set apart for the Eternal every first issue of the womb, Every male firstling that your cattle drop shall be the eternal. But every firstling ass you shall redeem with a sheep. And if you do not redeem it, you must break its neck. In other words, if you don't give it to God, you can't have it. And you must redeem every male firstborn among your children, which is called pidyon haben. This is one of the only elements of biblical tradition that survives to this day. 
many Jews, pigeon ben, if you have a firstborn son, you have to go to a Kohen, someone named Cohen, and you give them a five dollars instead of the five shekels to redeem your child because that child belongs to God. That's a really ancient custom that we that some Jews huh pigeon ben. But I just want to show how old it is. It comes from here. Um, and uh, think about in the book of Samuel. Hannah is praying for a child, and uh, she says, if she's barren, she is the loved wife of, um, what's his name? Um, what's the guy's name? Uh, Murray. <laughs> Elkanah. Elkanah, yeah. Mel Brooks is famous. I was going to say, it sounds like a Mel Brooks bit. Yes. One such day, Murray offered a sacrifice. Yeah, Elkanah. And uh, um, Panina has lots of kids, and Hannah doesn't have any. And so this story sounds familiar. We read it on Rosh Hashanah in conjunction with the story of Sarah. But I'm mentioning it to you because Hannah prays and says, O Lord, if you will look upon the suffering of your maidservant, and if you will grant your maidservant a male child, I will dedicate him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And so, when Samuel is born, she fulfills her vow, and she brings Samuel back to the temple, to the Mishkan. And Samuel lives there and grows up there. He's given to God. So, again, the, the stories in Samuel and Judges and Joshua are, the, are among the oldest stratum of Jewish sources, sometimes older than the Bible itself and than the Torah itself. That's, my, that's what it appears to me. And so here we have a tradition where the firstborn son, if the mother vowed, would be given to the service of God, as opposed to the Levites, or in addition to the Levites. Uh, and uh, certainly, you know, I've heard enough stories about Irish Catholics who, you know, have a, have a son, or it's gonna be a, he's going to be a priest, you know, or I'm sure that's true in other cultures as well, all around the world, that we dedicate our first of anything to God. And uh, uh, so here's a story of Samuel, who is not a Levite, but simply a firstborn being given to God. However, um, oh, oh, let me read a little further. Verse 14. And when in time to come, a child of yours asks you, saying, what does this mean? You shall reply. It was with a mighty hand that the Eternal brought us out from Egypt, the house of bondage. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Eternal slew every male firstborn in the land of Egypt, the firstborn of both human and beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Eternal every first male issue of the womb of the animals, but redeem every male firstborn among the people. I don't think it could be clearer in terms of Torah that the firstborn belongs to God, that God, we owe God. God didn't kill us, our firstborn, when God killed the firstborn of Egypt. Instead, God took us as God's firstborn, and now we owe God all our firstborn. Again, I'm sharing this with you because I want to get it straight in my head. What it means to us, I'm not sure yet. 
that's, I'm not going to, I don't, I'm just, I thank you for letting me explore all this with you, because that's where my interest went today. So, um, and so it shall be a sign upon your hand and a symbol on your forehead, that with a mighty hand the Eternal freed us from Egypt. So the fact that we pay little attention to what it means to be a firstborn, to whether we owe God our firstborn, to what it, um, it's still really, really central in the Torah. And so I wanted to wrap my mind around if you follow what I'm, what I'm saying. So now let's look. Oh, and so I also took note that Christianity, the stories of Christianity, which, as you know, are coming straight out of Judaism, right? Jesus and his followers and the people who wrote the Gospels were all Jews doing their own interpretation. Jesus is God's begotten son and God let Jesus be sacrificed in order to rescue us so the metaphor the imagery just continues and for and when I looked at some Christian sources on firstborn it's like it's all over the place so they took this idea and put it into God's son uh, which I find fascinating whereas for the rest of the rest of Jewish thought separate from Christianity that never happens. We are God's chosen firstborn. So are we God's sacrifice? What's our place in the world? What does it mean to be, get this double portion? It's like, choose somebody else, right? But um, it's significant in that we're chosen to be a light unto the nations by in the biblical mindset. And that's significant that God claims us as God's firstborn. So now... Uh, it also appears that the right of the firstborn could be sold because Esau sells it to Jacob. It appears it can be lost um, by misbehavior, like Reuben. Jacob takes it away from him for Reuben committing incest. It could also, um, there was one other example. Oh, yeah, and the, it can be canceled by decree, like Menashe is older than Ephraim. But Ephraim gets to be the firstborn. So, you know, there seem to be legal ways to change it. But here in Leviticus now, it explains um, how the Levites take the place of the children of Israel. And then it goes into great detail in a really interesting way to me. If you look at, back into our portion, um, page... Sorry. Oh, yeah, page 908. Good. So let's, this is the last piece I want to plug in here. Uh, Verse 38. So those who were to camp before the tabernacle in front, before the tent of meeting on the east, where Moses and Aaron, were Moses and Aaron and his sons, attending to the duties of the sanctuary as a duty on behalf of the Israelites, and any outsider who encroached was to be put to death into the Holy of Holies. 39. This is where I wanted to start. All the Levites who were recorded, counted, whom at the Eternal's command Moses and Aaron recorded by their clans, all the males from the age of one month up came to 22,000. 
Let's keep going. This is the Eternal One said to Moses, Now record every firstborn male of the Israelite people from the age of one month up and make a list of their names. And take the Levites for me, the Eternal, in place of every male firstborn among the Israelite people. And the cattle of the Levites in place of every male, male firstborn among the cattle of the Israelites. So Moses recorded all the male firstborn among the Israelites as the Eternal had commanded him. All the firstborn males as listed by name recorded from the age of one month up came to 22,273. Close, but no cigar, right? It's 22,000. And so then it says, the Eternal One spoke to Moses, take the Levites in place of all the male firstborn among the Israelite people and the cattle of the Levites in place of their cattle and the Levites shall be mine, the Eternal. And as the redemption price of the 273 Israelite male firstborn over and above the number of the Levites, take five shekels per head. Take this by the sanctuary way, 20 geras to the shekel, and give that money to Aaron and his sons as the redemption price for those who are in excess. So Moses took the redemption money from those over and above the ones redeemed by the Levites. He took the money from the male firstborn of the Israelites, 1,365 shekels, and Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons at the Eternal's bidding, as the Eternal had commanded Moses. So, it's, so the 273, so they counted all the Levites above one month old, males, all the Israelites, does that get that right? Yes, because they're not counting the firstborn among the Levites, they're counting all the Levites. But they're counting all the firstborn among all the Israelites, and the numbers are close. And the discrepancy in the numbers has to be handled so that it's completely legit. And the Levites have now taken over from the firstborn, and the Levites belong to God. And the Levites have to serve God's temple. They do not own land. The Levites are in a completely different position than the rest of the Israelites. They do not own land. They belong to God. Now, on the one hand, it's a privileged position because uh, you're in the divine position. On the other hand, it's a totally indentured position. You belong to God because God didn't kill the Israelite firstborn and instead liberated them from slavery and took us as God's firstborn. So the metaphor just rolls on and on. We all belong to God as Israelites. We are God's firstborn son, and therefore um, we're in a very special relationship. We have to serve God because God, we owe our life to God. And the Levites, in the practical um, uh, managing of the spiritual center of the community, replace our firstborn as God's firstborn in that precinct. Uh, so I figured all that out. <laughs> and do you think there's any significance to why it was the Levites? That is a great question. Let's see, what do we know about Levi? Well, um, it's Levi and Shimon who, when Jacob, when Dina and Hamor wants to marry Dina, I love that Hamor's name is Hamor. 
It means, you know, the ass, the donkey. But when Prince Hamor wants to marry um, Dina and sleeps with her, um, Shimon and Levi are the ones who trick uh, Hamor's tribe to circumcise themselves and say, if you circumcise yourselves, remember this story, we're all in with you, it's good. And Dina can be with you. And then while they're all laid up in bed, go and slaughter them all. And Jacob is horrified. And so at the end of um, Genesis... He's not horrified for moral reasons, though. Um, what you've done is odious. You've made me odious to my neighbors. Right, right. right. But then at the end of Genesis, in Jacob's final blessing to his children, which is kind of... I don't know if you call it a blessing. It's a charge or something like that. He says, Shimon and Levi are partners. Instruments of violence are their plan. Let me not enter their council, nor let my being join their assembly. For they killed a man in their wrath, and in their whim hamstrung an ox. Cursed is their wrath so fierce, and their fury so harsh. I will disperse them in Jacob, I will scatter them in Israel. That's, uh, that's well, you know, so Levi is scattered among Israel. He doesn't have a land holding. He's, he's, uh, yeah, um, but that doesn't answer the question, does it? The rabbis talk about his warlike nature and the need to bring Levi, Levi, the Levites close to God so that their, their uh, warlike nature can be put in service of preserving the sanctuary. That's one thing the rabbis propose. Um, but it, so far it hasn't all fallen into place for me. The other th- interesting thing for me is that the name Levi comes from the Hebrew verb to accompany or to escort. Because uh, Leviah is a funeral in Hebrew, meaning a funeral, uh, a funeral escort, right? And Leviah. And, uh, and uh, so Lelavot means to accompany or escort. So is the name Levi because they were essentially the escort of the holy uh, items? It, I don't know. I haven't figured that one out. Um, why, why it's supposed, why Levi in particular? Um, if they had no holdings, how did they till the land to support their families? Uh, through the um, uh, gift brought to the sanctuary. There was a tithe. But those were given to God. They weren't given to the... Yeah, but God doesn't eat. God eats. God loves the good... Remember, God loves the reach nichoach, the, the pleasing odor of the sacrifices. But, uh, and some sacrifices are supposed to be consumed in their entirety, but most sacrifices are not. say who eats it, though. It does. It does. Oh, it does. No, 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 the Torah explains that the Levites and Aaron get to eat, you know, they bring some, some of the offerings, especially the Thanksgiving offerings, are to be shared with everybody. And they include not only animals, but um, sweet cakes and fruits and vegetables. So you bring all this to the temple as well as the shekel, the half shekel that you have to give in order to maintain the upkeep of the sanctuary. So the Levites don't have land, they don't have a hereditary land holding, but they are supported by mandatory contributions from the community. I, I think they also eat 
Yes. And specifically for them. Yes, yes. There are some offerings that are specifically. And when um, Korach rebels against uh, um, Moses and Aaron in a few weeks from now, Korach is a Levite. Korach is their first cousin. But he wants a better job. And the, um, the uh, Midrash puts words in Korach's mouth beyond the words in the portion and says, Korach would go to all the tents of the Israelites and say when Moses and Aaron weren't facing everybody, look at their calves like melons. They eat a lot better than you. And it's a really great Midrash. Uh, so, you know, the priests, the priests had it good in a certain way. In another way, their lives were very restricted. Um, and... Uh, Gosh, I guess the Catholic Church kind of uh, kept that going, um, both in terms of the so-called vow of poverty that priests take and the fact that the church is one of the biggest real estate holders in the world, um, because whatever you can get away with. So uh, You can't marry. They can't marry. They're married to the church. On the other hand, I'm just saying that it's a, it's, it's a, it's a complicated position to be that close to God and also have access to that many um, uh, good meals. I yeah. Have, I have a question. Are any of the restrictions that are on the Nazarites, do they go for the Levites? Well, let's talk about the Nazarites. In next week's portion, we learn about that someone who is not a Levite, in other words, someone who's not automatically by birth. So in ancient Israel, and to this day, if you follow this practice, your firstborn son, you have to redeem. So still, the firstborn belongs to God, but there's a simple ceremony to buy them back. Uh, but, so, but beyond that, the Levites have taken care of that in Jewish life, right? They are our collective firstborn, given over to God. But what if you want to be close to God in a state of, a state of heightened purity and uh, holiness. So we'll read about this ancient practice called the Nazarite, who it would take a vow, it could be a man or a woman, as you were reading, who would take a vow for a certain period of time, and the promise would be not to cut their hair, nor to eat any grape products, no wine, no grapes, nothing that came from the vine, and to keep, and did I say not cut your hair, that's where the Samson story comes from, so that you could tell a Nazarite um, by their appearance, because uncovering your hair in that ancient uh, tradition made you just stand out. Um, the Levites have to have haircuts. The Levites have to have haircuts, and when the Nazarite, so hair is like a big Hair is a big thing, just like it is today. I mean, think about the place hair plays in our culture. You know, hair is like, hair is amazing. Um, so uh, the Nazarite does that when they fulfill the period of their vow. Um, they go through a ritual similar to the other rituals of being reintegrated in the community. They have to shave all the hair off their body and they have to wash and they have to go outside the camp and then come back in and they're reintegrated. But the purpose of being a Nazarite appears to be the, the ability to be in a special relationship with God even if you're not born into that uh, category. 
That's my understanding of it. Now, Samson, it's his parents who promise that they will never cut his hair. And so he's a Nazarite for life. And then comes the whole story about Samson having the strength in his hair. And then Samuel, it says, uh, Hannah says, if you bless me with a male child, I will dedicate him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor shall ever touch his head. So Samuel also is in this interesting category. That's not connected to when the, when the male was three years old, then to cut his hair. That is not connected to the tradition, which comes just from the Middle Ages, that uh, when a little, uh, uh, with a, a, you don't give a little boy a haircut until their third birthday. That comes, interestingly, from the uh, tradition about fruit trees, that you do not prune a fruit tree until after three years. And so somewhere along the way, that became a tradition that was adopted by many, many ultra-Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews. And so they have the upsharon after the age of three, but it, it seems to be connected to the... Uh, well, I thought maybe it was part of the hair issue. Uh, it's related, well, like I said, hair in every culture is like, you can do so much with it, you know, it's an amazing display. It's, I mean, in my, in my, uh, you know, David Attenborough mode, it's like you watch what human, if you did a documentary, a nature documentary, what humans do with their hair in different cultures, you know, it would match up with other kinds of display in other species, so... I'm pretty interested in that, actually. My younger son had a beard for a while. I yes. Guess, I think just, I think still in college, maybe beginning law school, and it was a very full beard, except that here he had it braided from sort of here to here. I bet you loved that. Oh, it really looked fun. Oh my goodness, my older brother grew his hair out, uh, and there was, this was right at that moment, you know, 1968, 69. I remember screaming arguments between him and my mom about the length of his hair. It's amazing how that doesn't seem to matter to many people. You know? I mean, the ponytail on the other one was fine. It was the yeah. braiding. It just was hideous. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. But the Nazarite is not um, taking care of the temple. It the Nazarite sense. is not taking care of the temple. Bye, Ted. Thank you. Yes, Berea. Yes, yes. The firstborn has a special that no one else has. Let's think about this. Let's think about anybody of us who've been around the first baby in the family. How about who is the first baby? The first baby? <coughs> oh. You are the firstborn. It's very important. I'm, I'm very protective of that. You are too? I didn't know that. Yeah, and my son is the firstborn. And there is a special, and there is a study of, I don't remember now who it is, but it can be found, that firstborn have a forever feeling of loss of the independence, the independent love they had from birth. And therefore, the whole their whole life want to please either the parents or somebody in power who will give them back that love or attention that they had since they were born. I'm so glad 
you're bringing up the psychological element because I think we should dis- I'm just thinking I, I, I'm a middle child so I always thought I had it bad until I was old enough to recognize the burden my older brother had faced as the firstborn um, and uh, but I'm thinking about you know like my stepbrother Jesse uh, and Maris they're wonderful their three daughters are all adults now and they've been waiting and waiting for grandchildren, right? And so Reina had a baby a few months ago. So this is the first grandchild, Molly. This is the first grandchild in this whole family because the aunt, the sisters are, in, are unbelievably excited too. And I'm thinking about the energy and attention. The, the firstborn, it's a big deal. That's it. And they always want to please the power to be the parents or mainly the parents, uh, to regain that, that exclusive attention they had until the second one was born. Interesting. And they're very competitive in... Absolutely. In, uh, <laughs> 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 well, Karen's the firstborn, and she's agreeing that my they're competitive. Mine, right. I'm very competitive, and Are I'm you com- possessive yes, of them. Yes, competitive, individual-minded, um, yet dependent on that initial love they had. Interesting. And therefore, they want to make up with achievements. Firstborn, if you take stock of all the people who are in rule in, 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 uh, in so there's a st- there's a statistical absolutely uh-huh. rulers or in business or in whatever they do, they always try to be the, the achievers. Interesting. That's my Amelia. Are you a firstborn? <laughs> no, that's my Amelia. Oh, that's your Amelia, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, Abby? I, just, uh, you know, my, I have two older brothers. One actually just passed away last year. Um, and the, so the first brother, David, of course, my father was, of course, bar mitzvah, and of course, David was bar mitzvah, but Marshall wasn't. He was the second? He's the second. Uh-huh. <clears throat> who just passed. Um, and I always, it always bothered me, like, you know, it bothered me that he, I mean, we weren't, uh, we didn't have money for me to, we, the, our, me and my sister did not go to Hebrew school to be bat mitzvah. But of course the boys, it felt like it, they had to be. But when Marshall wasn't, it always bothered me, like how, how it didn't bother my father that Marshall wouldn't, didn't go to get uh-huh. bat mitzvah, didn't, uh-huh. go, didn't go to Hebrew school and learn. And I really feel like it had affected his life, like he's gone now. He took a wrong turn. He didn't, for some reason, whatever wisdom that David picked up in those years of Hebrew school, maybe, and he's like, he's a big businessman. He makes, he, not, not for me, but he's a big man. <laughs> so, you know, he's that firstborn. And it, I, I always felt bad for Marshall. And he didn't want to do it. And my father needed him to build houses, so he needed him to be a home building and not in uh-huh. Hebrew school. But, so, but I always thought, why... Didn't it bother my father, you know? But now I really—it was more important about the firstborn. He set his firstborn through in the tradition of getting bar mitzvah, mm-hmm. and I felt like, and I, and I, I just don't want I mean, then that was enough for him. He gave, he dedicated his first son, and like I was the baby, so you know they raised me basically, you know. And, but the funny joke about being the baby is they said, yeah, you were a very late talker because with four, three other siblings, you just pointed and, uh, 
and I got what I wanted. <laughs> well, the baby in the family is a whole other That's story. That's a whole, everyone, the, the, everyone's got a story. But the idea that the firstborn is there, not, I mean, the father, I, I'll just, you know, it's, yeah. it's not about the children, it's about needing the son to say cottage. So he had an investment. Perhaps. That's right, because the, the first point, your kid is called your Kaddishel, your Kaddishel, right? One of, the, one of the Yiddish names for your kid is the one who's going to say Kaddish for you. Especially the firstborn. Firstborn, the first uh-huh. Son. Yeah. Firstborn There's son. Wow. I remember when, you know, and I bet everybody has a story like this, when the, um, uh, when Nati was three, my nephew, and his little brother Sefi came home from the hospital, and Nati said, uh, he can't come in, he doesn't have shoes. You know, it was like, he was just a three-year-old trying to come up with a rationale. And then, and so then I hear from other people's stories about, when are you taking the baby back to the hospital? You know, it's true. That's what Danny did, he packed up Sandy, she was a month old. <laughs> she packed up her stuff and he said, okay, mommy, you can take it. <laughs> and then they're the ones who take justice into their own hands. So. Oh, gosh, yes. He was only 20 months old. I'm only 20 months from my brother, too. He's very close. <laughs> wow, wow. Boy, life's complicated. So what this is helpful to me is, is, is you know, the next thing to th- me think about is what is the experience of not just the firstborn, but the family who produces their firstborn. And whenever you see a, a couple who have their first child and the, the just the, 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 unless it's a completely dysfunctional mess, you know, the focus, uh, the intensity of that bond. Um, I was actually grateful that we managed to have a second child uh, so that some of the focus could go off the firstborn <laughs> a little in my family. Um, and then to, anyway, okay. Uh, anybody else have thoughts? I just went, wondered. Yes, Bob? I think there are uh, psychological studies of uh, sibling position. Yes. And I'm sure there's books on the second son. I, I don't have it clear in my head, but I think I'll Google it because I, I'm sure there's a big literature. There is a big literature. And that reminds me of something, if you don't mind me interrupting. I'm done. Okay, which is that one of the things we know from the Book of Judges and from other Near Eastern sources is that because the firstborn receives the land holding, the younger sons do not have a land holding. And in, I think it's in the story of Yiftach, which involves a sacrifice, actually. Um, let me just look for this, and then we'll quit. Do they not have a land holding at all, or do they have a smaller? It appears that, they, that the family land holding, they work for their brother. Okay. Primogenitor, what? It says a double portion, but when there's a land holding, how do you do it? I mean, that's how you sustain your family. If you divide your land into quarters, and then the next one divides it into more quarters, it's not sustainable. Uh, So, Judges chapter 11 is... 
<laughs> Chapter 11, bankruptcy, yeah. Okay, so, um, Yiftach. Uh, ah, Yiftach the Giladite was an able warrior who was the son of a prostitute. Yiftach's father was Gilead, but Gilead also had sons by his wife, and when the wife's sons grew up, they drove Yiftach out. They said to him, you shall have no share in our father's property, for you are the son of an outsider. Um, so Yiftach fled from his brothers and settled in the region of Tov, which is interesting, and Anashim Rekim. Men, Rekim means like empty. So it's translated here as men of low character. But when I studied this portion, Rekim could mean people who had no property, vacant had gathered about him and became a band of raiders with him. So it appears from this source and other sources th that these second and third and fourth, these latter born kids, um, men, were, think of chimpanzees, you know, were, think of other primates, were roaming bands, and the alpha male had the... And but, but this child is not of the clan. I mean, you know, they, they say he's not really a brother. They, true. They, they, they say he's not really a brother. That's true. But so they kick they, him out. But there's still a but, they. But are, you see their firstborn. That's true. But, but that's it was, true. It was an issue throughout medieval Europe, certainly for the third that's, and fourth son. Right. Where there was nothing left for them. Either, I mean, the third one might go into the monastery, become, become a priest. That's right. The fourth one... That's where the fairy tales come from, the ones who go out that's to seek right. their fortune. Right. Right. That's right. Or, as happened more likely, they joined the army. They joined the they, army. They were mercenaries. They were mercenaries, that's right. There was not plain robbers. Or, yeah, it's a fine line. <laughs> it's a fine line between, right. <laughs> between being a soldier and a, and a bandit. Yeah. <laughs> so, the, the, yeah. This, the son, the firstborn son, was the son of the, pro, of the prostitute. It doesn't say. Oh. It says Gilead also had sons by his wife. Oh. So, and he's the son of a prostitute. So you're right, his status is different. But it was that phrase I remembered about Anashim Rekim, you know, which again, could be translated as men of low character, but could also be translated as men who have no, no property. Um, and then the story of Yiftach, speak, going right back to the beginning, is a story where he makes a vow that he, if they win in battle, he becomes the leader. He becomes he become he becomes the leader of the tribes in this battle against uh, Sihon, the, the king of the Amorites, and he, he makes a vow that uh, um, he will sacrifice the first thing he sees when he comes home from battle if he's if he's God allows him to be victorious, and when Jephthah arrived at his home, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrel and dance. She was an only child. He had no other son or daughter. It sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? Like a bad, sad one. Mm -hmm. On seeing her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, daughter, I cannot retract my vow. And she asks for two months to go bewail her maidenhood. And then he, he sacrifices his daughter to fulfill his vow. Who does that? Yiftach, because he made a vow that the first thing he sees it's a tragic story in yeah, Judges, terrible. yeah. Terrible. Well, it's time for us to stop, but thank you for letting me explore this. Uh, I, I was very curious. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you next week.